Hello, and welcome to another installment of Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. In this episode, Dr. Joe Stoltz sits down with Tom Clavin to discuss his new book titled Valley Forge. As a friendly reminder, there is still time to register for our upcoming Ford Evening Book Talk featuring Chief Curator of the Frick Collection, Xavier F. Salomon, who will be talking about his book, Canova's George Washington, on June 4. More information about the event can be found on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. As always, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast series so that you do not miss an episode. And without further ado, we join Dr. Stoltz and Tom Clavin in the studio. Hi, Tom. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today with us. Oh, my pleasure. I was looking forward to being here. So, uh, Valley Forge, I've heard of that. Mm -hmm. I suspect a lot of our listeners have. Um, But before we get to to your specific uh, book that we're here today to talk about, um, would you mind just sort of giving our listeners sort of a background on who you are and, and how you came to the topic of Valley Forge? Well, I'm somebody who writes uh, solo books, uh, and I also write with uh, with Bob Drury, who for many years has also been a very good friend in addition to a collaborator. Valley Forge is the sixth book that we've done together. And our previous books uh, took place in the in, in were, were 20th century military matters. A mm-hmm. uh, couple of World War II books, uh, a couple of Korean War books, or one Korean War book, and and when we had finished our last book, which was a World War II story, we really were looking for something deeper into the American past. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, some people might gravitate towards the Civil War, but I, I personally I had always been fascinated with the American Revolution, yet never previously had a chance to write about it. And just trolling around for some information, for something that looked interesting, I started reading about Valley Forge. And I think, like many, many people... I had a sort of social studies textbook view of Valley Forge that uh, nothing happened for six months except guys froze in the snow. George Washington was up on a horse watching them freeze in the snow. And whoever hadn't frozen by the time Valley Forge was over got up and left. Mm-hmm. And that was the entire story of Valley Forge. And I discovered that uh, there's so much more to it. I mean, even to the point where once Bob Drury and I got deeper into the research, we became convinced, and I know we've, we've debated this with other people, we became convinced that Valley Forge was the turning point to the American Revolution. There's, there's other competitors for that title, mm-hmm. but we really feel, strongly believe Valley Forge was it. Great. Um, so you, you did World War II, definitely. Korea, maybe not for, mm-hmm. for my next question here, but you know, it shakes me... You, you you tend to write about um, topics that are are, are um, big in the American psyche, mm-hmm. and and that and that you know especially when you're it's, it's a little easier when you're doing more modern stuff to, yeah. to have stuff that still resonates today. Um, how has uh, the response to the book been, and and sort of that idea of you know you know to put, whether whether it was the turning point or not, it's still one of the foundational moments uh, in this country's history. And, and how have you? How did you approach that? Well, I think one one way we approached it is to really dig deep into the story. I, I think you're you're perfectly right that it's one of the foundational moments in our history. But I don't know that it's appreciated as such mm-hmm. by a lot of people. Again, a lot of people have heard of it, 
And any social studies textbook, there, there may have been a very short description of it or nothing more than an illustration. Mm-hmm. You know, during the winter of 1770-78, George Washington's army, Continental Army was in Valley Forge, and then cut to the next, you know, more bells and whistles. Mm-hmm. Um, so we wanted to dig really deeper into it, uh, especially George Washington as the focus. Uh, I think people who read the book will discover that there's even, if, if you needed any more reasons to admire George Washington and how important he was to the American Revolution, then I think our book Valley Forge does that because it was his, uh, his, his leadership, his resiliency, his fortitude, his compassion, and you can put a whole bunch of other words in there, that I think that, that really made the difference in that army surviving Valley Forge. So uh, I think we, we're, we're much more, because there was no battle of Valley Forge, mm-hmm. so you really don't have an opportunity until you get to the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse at the end. Uh, you don't have an opportunity too much in the book to have action scenes take up a lot of the pages. We really burrow into the characters who were there. You know, obviously George Washington as, as the lead character, but the Marquis de Lafayette, Alexander Hamilton, who was Washington's right-hand man through Valley Forge and, and, and through the most much of the Revolution, uh, Baron von Steuben, who was the Prussian officer who came mm-hmm. over to train the Continental Army, uh, and 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 there's a, there's a whole even Benjamin Franklin is a character because it was during Valley Forge that he made the breakthrough in Paris that brought the French in, and some of the events of Valley Forge had an impact on that. Uh, you have future characters who were there at Valley Forge, uh, Washington's junior officers, uh, John Marshall, who later became mm-hmm. Chief Dutch- Justice of the Supreme Court, James Monroe became the sixth president of the United States. So it's very much character-driven, and every so often we do get to pause because there was some interesting action going on, including an attempt to depose Washington as commander-in-chief. So I think what we tr- what we found was Valley Forge, you know, sort of ironically being that it was uh, a wintry wasteland for much of that time was really fertile ground for a lot of the stories and characters that were very important to that to the American Revolution, and right in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I, I love your point about it being uh, so character driven. Now, who? You know, let's talk about some of those characters. Uh, who's your favorite character that you either discovered that you didn't? No, and obviously these are all historical people, right? Yeah. But, but that you either uh, discovered that you didn't know about before, or that maybe you got a new uh, sort of interpretation of, or sort of a new awakened appreciation of. Well, there's no doubt in my mind that I really felt strongly connected to John Lawrence, mm-hmm. and and he's he's the founding father nobody knows, and and so so people listening to this is going to say, okay, so who is he? Yeah. Uh, he was 22 years old. He was, became, during Valley Forge and Cameron, Alexander Hamilton's best friend. He was one of the surrogate sons George Washington had, had at Valley Forge. He was from South Carolina. During the Valley Forge and Cameron, or I think right before, his father, uh, Henry Lawrence, became the president of co- the Continental Congress, or what was left of it, mm-hmm. because they had been chased out of Philadelphia and were barely hanging on in York, Pennsylvania. And uh, he was a, he was a uh, very we call him in the book the idealist. Mm-hmm. He, he the, the, the 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 fever of liberty burned you know burned in his chest, and he really believed in the ideals. And and uh, he was somebody who who Washington really uh, drew from him. So the strength of his passion was very important to him. It didn't hurt that his father was the Continental yeah. Congress president, but during a time that Washington came very close to being fired, essentially. 
but he was somebody who was had had total bravery. He 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 kept itching to get up on a horse and lead cavalry charges with his sword, which he eventually got to do. Uh, but he was he was such a fascinating character, and we we have access to. I mean, other people get access to. It wasn't like we we you know we we bribed him. Great, great, great grandson, but but uh, there's 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 a couple of volumes of his his correspondence written at Valley Forge, and he was a he was a incessant letter writer. So that so much of his voice is actually in the book, and I would guarantee that m- many people who consider themselves experts in the American Revolution they may have heard of John Lawrence, maybe even in passing, mm-hmm. but to, who he actually was, and and the years he spent un- until. I mean, he's called the. If, if he had survived and he was killed during the war, mm-hmm. he would have been like Hamilton and and Jefferson and some of those other people. One of the founding fathers. He would have been a Secretary of State. He would have been a Secretary of something. He would have been the the head of the army at some point. And 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 a great great life was unfortunately taken um, towards as actually towards the end of the war. Yeah, and and uh, you know, just to be clear to our, our, our listeners, this is not a setup at all. Uh, when I when I when I say this next part, but I, I'm really glad you brought up Henry Lawrence, and I, I'm really intrigued by one of the things you said there that you know, if he'd lived longer, uh, what an impact he probably would have had. Because I mean, I was, John Lawrence, or, yeah, sorry, okay. uh, yeah, John Lawrence, um, because I was actually just earlier today having a, 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 a conversation with one of the groups that was visiting here about Washington and the issue of abolition. And one of the things we were discussing was uh, Lawrence and Hamilton's and, and Lafayette's uh, uh, sympathies for abolition. Mm-hmm. You know, and, th- and these are guys that are debating this constantly at, at the dinner table at yeah. night with Washington. Uh, and it really would have been interesting to see if, if you'd had sort of an outspoken, politically connected abolitionist mm-hmm. uh, from South Carolina yeah. that would have gone back to South Carolina uh, it would have been interesting to see what would have maybe come out of that. Yeah, that's a very good point, especially if he had survived the revolution. He would have gone back to South Carolina as a war hero. I mean, he had great credentials. And and that kind of gravitas and that kind of in-the-trenches experience that he had, he very much was for abolition. He kept trying, he kept pushing Washington and pushing his mm-hmm. father. And he's a guy from South Carolina uh, to raise uh, you, you know units of, of black soldiers. And have them fight side by side, and there, there was a couple of times Washington even sort of gave you know okay let's try it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it de- never quite worked out, and, and then he ended up being assigned to other things. I mean, he was a diplomat for a while. He was back as an officer in command of a fighting unit. Uh, so I think I, when, when your original question about who was a surprise and, and, mm-hmm. and John Lawrence definitely fits the bill with with maybe one of the, a, a second place or third place going to David Bushnell, <laughs> the man from Connecticut who created the United States military submarine warfare program yeah. during the Valley Forge encampment. <laughs> well, let's 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 talk a little bit about that because uh, someone was like submarine warfare. And I, I, yeah. I know, I've given I've given talks, yeah. and when I get a chance to mention, mention David Bushnell, I can see people in the audience nudging each other and said, "This thing just went off the rails." <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, but he was a, an eccentric inventor from Connecticut who actually designed and built a submarine, obviously a very crude one, mm-hmm. and, and and he also cr- created a torpedo. And he approached Washington, I believe it was in January 1778, during the Valley Forge encampment, and said, I'm going to put this thing in the water. It's going to go underwater up to the flagship of Admiral Howe in Philadelphia Harbor and blow it up. And Washington was perplexed, to say the least. (laughs) (laughs) 
But he said, you know what? We don't have much else going for us yeah. right now. Go for it. You know, what's, no, what's my cost? Yeah, yeah, there's, go, yeah. there's no downside here. Yeah. Yeah, take, take Sergeant so-and-so from, and, 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 and put him in the submarine and see what he does. Yeah. And this thing almost worked. You know, there was, there, it was kind of a funny reason why it didn't. It, nobody knew until the submarine actually got up to the Admiral's flagship that it, un, below the waterline was lined with, I think, copper. Mm-hmm. So he couldn't screw in the torpedo and, and back away and have it detonate. But the concept was shown that you could actually put a craft under the water mm-hmm. and 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 go undetected up to a enemy ship and and do and do something with it. So uh, it, it would be decades until mm-hmm. something really practical came of that. But it was but as far as as far as, as early as January seventeen seventy eight, it showed that there could be something a submarine that could be used as a weapon. Yeah, no, it, 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 it's it's always interesting to see uh, George Washington's fascination. With uh, science and technology, mm-hmm. uh, you know this isn't di- the, 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 where I'm going to go with this isn't directly related to the revolution, but uh, right after uh, is going to be the first manned air flight. Uh, mm-hmm. Right, the Montgolfier brothers are going to go up in a balloon. Yeah, uh, and when Washington hears about it, he writes correspondence like essentially to the point of like. I wish I'd had that during the war. Right. That would have been awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I can think of all sorts of ways I could have used that. Right, right. Uh, so he was definitely... A, anyway, so that's fun. Uh, you know, you, you think it's the Civil War. It's got to get to World War One or World War Two before you get to cool technology. But, right. But, you know... The concept was yeah, shown that yeah. it could work. A lot more had to fall into place, of yeah. course, before it, it actually would work. Um, well, to get back to the army that was there, uh, you, know, you, you mentioned... Uh, my f- obviously, uh, obviously George Washington has to be my favorite character. Mm-hmm. If my boss is listening, uh, <laughs> but a close second would be the Baron von Steuben, yes. who I find uh, a fascinating character. And there, there are two books that when we get groups that come here to the library, uh, there are two books that I, when we when we uh, have a group and we can we can show them a book we have. That they just really flip out for. Uh-huh. Um, one of them is Washington's Acts of Congress. Uh-huh. Uh, it's his working copy of the Constitution, yeah. uh, where he actually has notes as president about how yeah. to be president. Um, the other is one of von Steuben's manuals, drill manuals, yeah. And especially any group from the U.S. Army to this day, yeah, just absolutely geeks out uh-huh. uh, yeah. when they see it. Yeah. Um, so who was von Steuben? And why are these people geeking out about this drill manual? Well, von Storben was somebody who was a Prussian. I mean, he came from a Prussian military family. And he himself became a, uh, I think the highest rank he rose to was captain in the army of, of Frederick the Great. And uh, at the time of the American Revolution, he was out of a job. He had been connected to a couple of scandals in there. And, and the army had been downsized. And he made his way to Paris to... Uh, uh, basically beg for a job from Ben Franklin. Like, say, can you give me a commission and send me to the United States and put me on a payroll, and I'll, I'll yeah. do whatever I can. And and the French also found out about him, and they sort of winked, winked, and said, you know what, why don't we send him over there? We'll fake his resume and send him over there, because he could also spy for us and let us know how bad are things there. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe we're not, we shouldn't come in on the side of the Americans if they're, if they're hanging on by their fingernails, which they, they pretty much were. Uh, so uh, Franklin doctored von, von Steuben's resume so that by the time he showed up to greet Washington at Valley Forge, he was a lieutenant general in the Prussian army. And he shows up in this wagon drawn by horses and with four or six Doberman pinchers and a French cook uh, with him. Whoa, 
only lasted a couple of days when he discovered there was nothing to cook, <laughs> French or otherwise. Um, and, and he founded this ragtag army that was barely above the level of militia and uh, that didn't know a lot of the basics. And this was the army that had no wonder had been taking on the chin from the, during the fall of 77 campaign from the British. And there was some kind of, I really believe some kind of transformation took place in von Steuben. Something, something really remarkable because he could have easily said, you know what, I did this, this is even worse than I anticipated. I'm getting out of here. Got back in the wagon and off he went. But I think, I think he was very impressed by George Washington, as most people who, who met him from what I've read research mm-hmm. said to me were. Uh, and I think he, he discovered, you know what, this is, a, this is a great challenge. I mean, if I could actually do something like this, what a reputation I'll have. Oh, they'll make me a big gen- major general. They'll do this. They'll do that. And he began to transform. The, his own personal transformation mm-hmm. led to a transformation of the army. He started with the basics, how to stand at attention, how to fix a bayonet, how to, how to march in, in, in columns and all the other technical details. And, yes, you're right about the, the drill manual, what he, what he did. He, he had Hamilton and, and sometimes John Lawrence and sometimes both of them at his side translating for him, too, because he didn't know English. Mm-hmm. So when he was giving instructions or cursing at the soldiers, they had to— he, they had they he would have to translate from Prussian to French and they would translate from French to English the curses, uh, and uh, and so but they were keeping these ma- a manual of all the instructions so that by the time that weeks and weeks had gone by and it actually began to look like a professional army here for the first time uh, in the war, uh, they had the they had the how to manual basically, and after the war if I have it correct I think it was until like 1815, 1820, it remained for the U S Army the main manual on how to instruct how to drill your troops to be a, a professional professional soldiers um, and he was actually he did get his wish that he did become a major general in, mm-hmm. in the American army uh, he saw action in, in the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse and in other actions and uh, he he the very last letter that Washington wrote uh, when he was stepping down as commander in chief of the army was to von Steuben in which he thanked him you know, Washington realizing that uh, you know there might have there might have been a way to they would have stumbled their way towards independence anyway. But but beginning with the Battle of the Monmouth Courthouse in June 1778, that was where the Americans showed the British that they were not going to be pushovers any longer, and the and the British were were gobsmacked. They they couldn't believe who are these guys? These are the guys we used to kick kick around whenever we felt like it. They're they're actually showing some fight and some professionalism, and and I think there's another reason why Valley Forge was a turning point in the war. Yeah, so so you know, I, I I I almost almost uh, took the time to to just in our own catalog here at the library look how many books on Valley or at least with the subject heading Valley Forge uh-huh. we have. Uh, I didn't, uh-huh. but I'm going to still guess that there's more than a few. Um, so what what makes your book different? And, and is there anything sort of new you discovered or, or, or sort of new uh, arguments that you're, you're bringing up? Well, th- that's actually kind of a two-part question. Yeah. Uh, to answer the first part, uh, there's a lot of books out there that we found that were for young adults, mm-hmm. middle school uh, students that pretty much uh, say the, the, a lot of the same things that, that our social studies textbooks did, which is not very much went on. <laughs> 
And uh, as far as a as, as a book for grownups uh, for a mainstream market, I guess there have been books you could talk for an academic market, a mm-hmm. scholarly market, university press, things like that. We wanted the Valley Forge story and all its complexity and character-driven and the, its importance to be told for a wide audience. And we mm-hmm. wrote it for a wide audience. I don't mean we dumbed anything yep. down. But what I, what I mean is that we think it's accessible. We think we think you want to keep turning the pages to find out what happens next, even though the framework of the story is six months in a lousy, horrible winter conditions. Um, so that that was what we, we, we what were trying to do, because we didn't think there had been anything, at least in recent years, for a mainstream audience. And um, I think what... What we hope would 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 make it different is to sort of. There's no such thing as the Battle of Valley Forge, mm-hmm. but our our position is that more so than that Valley Forge was a battle, and more so than uh, what happened in Trenton on that on that, that Christmas Eve or Christmas night, more so than Battle of Bunker Hill, more so than Yorktown and some of the other, even more so than Saratoga, we think that uh, it was the turning point of the war. Because if the army had not survived, and there were many, many, I mean, tw- Washington went into Valley Forge in December 19, 1777 with 12,000 troops, 2,000 died. It was a battle against everything, the elements, disease, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. It was a, a much higher mortality rate than any other battle by far in the mm-hmm. American Revolution. One out of six died. So if that it was a battle for survival, if that Continental Army, as Washington feared several times that it was going to disperse, you know, it was not going to cease to exist, uh, then there's a good argument to be made that come spring of 1778, the revolution was over. Mm-hmm. The British leave Philadelphia, and basically, if there's anything left to do, it's a mop-up operation. And what's left? You know, you, you think Gates at that point was going to be able to take command of a, of a reasonably formidable army that was going to do anything? Washington himself might have ended up being captured mm-hmm. and, and imprisoned. So we may have eventually down the road still, I think the forces were, that independence would have eventually been gained no matter what. But the story of independence as we know it would have been dramatically different, we think. Well, and, and this might sound weird, but I'll, I'll, I'll give an explainer at the backside. One of the things I really liked with your book uh, is that you actually stuck to Valley Forge. Mm-hmm. And and what I mean by that is um, there's a lot of books that claim to be about Valley Forge but then spend a lot of time talking about the six months before yeah. and in the Philadelphia campaign in general and then a lot that talk about the Monmouth campaign mm-hmm. after. And, and so actually a lot of books about Valley Forge only end up being about a third of the time right. roughly uh, on Valley Forge, yeah. and and so I think that's something you all did a fantastic job, uh, sort of crafting the narrative of to keep the focus there. And I and I, I really like something you just said there. With um, there was a battle. Mm-hmm. It was it was with the elements. It was with the high politics of yeah. the country. Um, you know, you mentioned a little bit about uh, one of the things they were fighting was the chance that Washington would be removed as mm. uh, commander of the army. Could you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> Yeah, the the, the uh, why didn't they love George? Uh, well, you know, there's more than one reason. I mean, let's to, uh, to be blunt about it. Washington was on a losing streak mm-hmm. for pretty much all of 1777. Things had started out good because of the the, the, the Washington crossing the Delaware and that surprise attack. Mm-hmm. But let's put that into perspective. It was ultimately not a major battle mm-hmm. that we won, and it didn't really change the course of the war by any means. And uh, much of, especially in the fall of 1777, you have 
You have uh, um, Brandywine Creek battle that was lost, the Germantown battle that was lost. You have Paoli massacre, anything that has massacre in the title yeah, doesn't turn out good, well. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and you have this army staggering into, into uh, Valley Forge as what, you know, even some of the people in Congress were saying this is where our revolution dies. Um, so Washington was on a losing streak. You had the comparison to Gates, Horatio Gates mm-hmm. with the Battle of Saratoga. Uh, even though for much of that battle, Gates personally never left his tent. You know, Benedict Arnold played more of a major role in that. Not victory. that Arnold's going to be grumpy about that at all. Either. Right, right. I know. So, uh, so there you have what seems to be, oh, here's, a, here's, here's plan B just popped up out of nowhere. Yeah. And um, one of the points we make in the book, too, is that the Continental Congress that had uh, elected Washington Commander-in-Chief in 1775 had dramatically changed its composition by the, the winter and spring of 1778. And so many of the, many, there were a lot of different lawmakers who had not been part of that vote for Washington. And also, there were many of the con- congressional delegates at that point, they never even met the man. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't that kind of personal connection. That, that they, they had not been subjected to the personal charisma that he had. That really could work a room. Uh, and so they, they, they were somewhat grasping at straws. You had, you had regional differences. I mean, John Adams had never been Washington's biggest fan. And so uh, he wasn't exactly going to put out any fires to, to maybe replace him as commander-in-chief. Um, you know, I think one of the, Washington had the political acumen to beat back this effort. Some, mm-hmm. some, sometimes it's called the Conway conspiracy, which doesn't do justice to the full nature of it. Uh, but to beat back this this attempt, what was a coup basically, uh, to usurp him and put somebody else in his place, it also helped that what were your, who were your main candidates? Gates and Charles Lee. Uh, and and neither one of them, both were, were pretty inept. Mm-hmm. I think both were British-born. Lee mm-hmm. certainly was. Good, I think good. Gates was too. Uh, that's not exactly who you want fighting at the head of your army, fighting the British, your, your main military leader. So uh, it is, it is I think, stunning in retrospect that during the Valley Forge encampment, part of what Washington had to devote his time to when he was being tugged in all different directions was saving his job. Mm-hmm. Imagine how our history would be different if, if the attempt to overthrow him had been successful. I, I can't imagine another, any other American military leader that would have been, you know, come close to what Washington did. Because even the thing with Gates is that you know, he and Charles Lee, both, they're both British-born, and they also both weren't used to the sort of militia, colonial slash state militia mm-hmm. differentiation between yeah. the armies, and they could both be a little heavy-handed. I mean, that's even uh, even with Gates at during the Saratoga campaign. Yeah. He's, yeah, he wins, but he makes a lot of political enemies yeah. up there in northern New York because he's just so heavy-handed with the militia. Yeah. Um, because he's a regular. Yeah. And they both had huge egos. Yeah. And not that Washington did not have an ego. I mean, it would be ridiculous to claim he did not have an ego. He, he But but the ego was secondary to the ultimate goal, which was to win the American independence mm-hmm. and, to, and, to, and, to, and to be victorious, to fulfill the job he was given. And that kind of selflessness, that level, you know, did not exist in the hearts and minds of Charles Lee and Horatio Gates, and it's that and it's that high level of selflessness and idealism, and perseverance and resilience, and personal bravery that Washington had too, 
that uh, you, you don't find that combination to that intense degree in any other military leader. Some, somebody could argue that Nathaniel Green was a very, very fine uh, senior officer and loyal to Washington, which he was. Mm-hmm. I still don't think that if Nathaniel Green had even been had even replaced Washington, we'd still be talking about the rest of the American Revolution like we do today. Uh, so I think I think that uh, I, I really I had admired George Washington when I was a kid. I liked to read about him and everything, but I really just fell in love with George Washington all over again. Working on this book to find out, to to be reconnected and to rediscover uh, the amazing qualities that he had, and that and that he really was. Uh, uh, indispensable. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know that we're actually going to find a better note to end on than that line right there, because I think that just made our entire board of directors happy. <laughs> so I will, I will just admit it. Thank you so much for for coming on the show, and people should definitely uh, take a look at the book. There will be uh, a link to uh, to purchase it on on this episode page, mm-hmm. uh, mountvernon.org/podcast. Okay, I love to talk about Valley Forge. I'm glad for the opportunity. Oh no, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.